We don't normally have um, sponsors for sermons, um, but in the spirit of the Olympics, uh, the corporate sponsor for this morning's sermon is um, Procter & Gamble, makers of Vicks Dayquil. Um, <laughs> if I uh, pause now and again to cough a bit, you'll know that they didn't uh, live up to their reputation. Anyways, since the first Sunday in January, our worship theme has been imagining ourselves into God's future. Where is God leading this congregation as part of God's much larger work of salvation? And what might we look like along the way? <clears throat> we invited a number of our members to envision what life might be like in this congregation 10 years from now. Not only what it might be like, but what these sisters and brothers hope it will be like in 10 years' time. We've been blessed with a number of visions for our future, any one of which we might wish and pray to come true. Or, like the child in the candy store, we may prefer not to pick just one thing, but may instead prefer to take the whole kit and caboodle. This has been a fundamentally hopeful exercise. At a minimum, it assumes that there will be an East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church in 10 years, not something to be taken for granted if we believe the statistics. But the dreams that we've heard described did not settle for that minimum. They did not merely assume a continued existence, but hoped for an existence that was lively and generous and joyful and in every way growing. They even suggested that our best years may be yet to come. The visions were also rooted firmly in history, in the past and present. None of the visions involved turning away from that history or repudiating it or rejecting it for the sake of our survival. Each one expressed appreciation for our heritage and for our current congregational life and mission while imagining what it might look like 10 years from now. And that rooting of our vision in our common history is also, I think, a hopeful thing because it tells me that we're well-grounded and aware of that grounding. We understand that God is not only the one who creates all things new, but also the one who entered into human history and walked among us. A God who is not as enamored as we human beings are of the brand new and the innovative, but also cherishes what has been and who can be found not only out in front of us, but also when we look back, whether all the way back to the stories of scripture or just a few years back to the story of this congregation and its individual members. Our visions for the future are rooted in what God has done and what God is doing and those roots also give me hope. And this has also been, whether we like the word or not, a profoundly missional exercise. The central assumption of the missional church, as I understand it, is that God is on a mission. God is on the move. God is actively engaging in the work of salvation, and that it is our part to join God in that mission, that movement, that work. So... Our responsibility is less about crafting some brand new program and much more about discerning where God is already at work and then aligning our congregational mission in that direction, listening for the voice of Jesus calling us or opening ourselves up to the stirring of the Holy Spirit and then saying yes and getting to work. And that too is what I heard in the multiple visions for our congregation. There's an awareness that God is at work around and among and within us already and that we can trust that, we can count on that, and we can arrange our corporate life around that. God's mission really does include this congregation, and that mission then shapes our imagination as we dream ourselves into our congregational future. 
And all along the way, we sought to ground our imaginings in the biblical witness. Each week, we've listened to the scriptures with an ear for what they reveal to us about God's movement in the world. What do we learn about that movement from the scripture? And what does what we learn have to say about our life together and where we will be some years from now? And what does that learning tell us about how to get there? Did you just turn me off, Jim? <laughs> oh, the power of the, the person in the booth. Well, can you hear me reasonably well? If you can't, I guess maybe move forward until we get this figured out. Um, where was I? What do we learn about that movement from the scriptures? What does what we learn have to say about our life together and where we will be some years from now? And what does that learning tell us about how to get there? Well, as I was reading our text for this morning with those questions in mind, I was struck especially by Paul's image of all of us with unveiled faces. It seems to me a lovely way to describe the larger reality of which are imagining these last weeks is just a tiny part. Paul is in the process of defending his ministry in Corinth and his relationship to the Corinthians from the attacks of other traveling preachers. Those preachers had undermined Paul's reputation and called his teaching into question. And there was apparently some exchange along the way between Paul and the Corinthians which caused pain in that community. So much so that Paul had to cancel a visit to them because he didn't want to cause them more pain. Much of this letter is comprised of Paul's attempt to both explain himself to his friends and to challenge his opponents. And if you ever wondered about Paul's ability to get sarcastic, well, this is the letter for you. The later chapters are brilliantly scathing in a way which I think reveals not only Paul's anger at the need to defend himself, but also his deep love for this community the kind of love that can cut you deeply when it's called into question or not returned. Well, chapter 3 begins with Paul edging towards sarcasm with his, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And then he cleverly turns the tables on his opponents, who seem to have made much of the fact that Paul had come to the Corinthians without any credentials to speak of, whereas they had come with letters of recommendation in hand. But why would Paul need such letters? When he had the Corinthians themselves, a living letter written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Well, Paul then spins his metaphor around and segues into a comparison between the law given to Moses, a letter written on stone tablets, with what has been given to us in the word made flesh. If the law written on stone tablets, which condemned us all to death, if that law came in such glory that Moses had to veil his face, how much more glorious is the coming of justification through Christ? If the law which has been set aside was glorious, how much more glorious is that gift which is permanent? If the law was bright, how much brighter was Christ? Well, let me quickly note the discomfort we may feel around such language. Every commentator I consulted was made queasy by Paul's argument, by its clear statement that the gospel supersedes the law. Such arguments may have been used to justify anti-Semitism throughout the church's history, making it possible for Christians to claim on biblical authority that Judaism was inherently inferior to Christianity and so was replaced by it, an argument which lent itself to all sorts of bad behavior on the part of Christians up to and including the Holocaust. Well, I'm not sure what to say about all that, uh, except to note it. 
and to remind us that Paul was a Jew when he wrote this letter and remained a Jew throughout his life. Paul was not a Christian, at least not in the way that we understand that word. Paul was a Jew who believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and wanted his fellow Jews to do the same thing. Anyways, back to our, what we're about this morning. Paul takes up this image of glory or radiance or brightness coming with the giving of the law. So much glory that Moses needed to veil his face so as to keep from blinding the people or terrifying the people when he came down the mountain. And Paul's particular spin is that Moses donned the veil so that the people wouldn't notice that the glory was fading, part of his temporary versus permanent argument. That veil remains. Only now it prevents the Jews from apprehending the truth of the law when it is read to them and is only removed by the coming of Christ. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, Paul writes, because Christ is about freedom, not bondage, not even the bondage of the law. And then that lovely line, and all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. And then Paul continues, if it is God's will that Paul does what he does, then Paul will not lose heart. He has nothing to hide. In fact, anyone with any awareness at all of the glory Paul just described ought to see him for who he is, a servant of Christ. Well, as I read this admittedly dense and difficult text with our theme in mind, I was, I was drawn to that line about unveiled faces. All of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. It seems to me to capture what we've been about these last weeks. As followers of Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit, our faces are unveiled. And yet, even we see the glory of God only as reflected in a mirror. Perhaps what we mean when we say that if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus, the perfect reflection of God's image. And so we trust not our own eyes, but the Spirit which reveals Christ to us, the Spirit who lifted our veils, the Spirit who draws us ever closer to God. But there's more going on here than an increasing ability to see the truth, to see the glory, to see that image in the mirror. Because at the same time, we are being transformed into whatever it is we see when we look at Christ. We're being transformed a little bit at a time, from one degree of glory to the next. The Spirit's not only unveiling our eyes so that we can see God's glory in Christ. The Spirit is also unveiling our bodies, our spirits, our everything, as it's being transformed into the divine image as it's becoming exactly what God has always intended it to be, from all the way back when God said, let us make human beings in our own image. The seeing, the dreaming, the imagining is only part of the journey, but a necessary part, I believe, because as we see, as we dream, as we bear witness to the glory of Christ, we're also being remade, transformed, moved from one degree of glory to another. We're becoming the very thing we imagine, the very thing we see when we look at Christ. And this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. What we've been up to these last weeks is looking at Christ, at the first and best sign of what God is up to in the world, the first and best indication of God's intentions toward our world, which are to seek and to save 
all that is lost. And then we imagine ourselves into the future with that vision in mind. And we do so with humility and with great confidence. Confidence because we believe what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that the Spirit is at work transforming us into the image of God in Christ. That what we have seen does indeed shape us, transform us, save us. And so we're confident in our dreaming because we believe that the one who began this work in us will see it through to the end. But we also dream with humility because it's the Spirit who unveiled our faces. It's the Spirit who made it possible for us to turn our eyes and minds and hearts toward Christ. And it's the Spirit who does the transforming, tugging us from glory to glory, changing, forming, and shaping, and remaking, and redeeming us until that day when we look in the mirror and are no longer ashamed. All of us, with unveiled faces, finally seeing glory face to face and becoming glorious in the process. That's where we'll be, if not in ten years, then someday. And until that day, we do precisely what we've been doing these last weeks. We discern, we listen, we dream, we imagine, we testify, and we trust that the Spirit is guiding us all along the way. And that wasn't even the text I wanted to concentrate on this morning. That's, um, well, so quickly to Luke's account of the transfiguration. And there's, there's an awful lot here, too. I was, I was sort of stunned in the silence for a good part of this week when I contemplated these two texts because I realized I could spend a year on either one of them and not finish. Anyways, there's a lot here in Luke's account of the transfiguration, too. There's the appearance of Moses and Elijah, which signaled to the disciples and Luke's audience, which is us, that the endorsement of that Jesus' ministry and mission had the endorsement of the Hebrew prophets, and that reminding us, too, that, that the work of Christ is deeply rooted in the Hebrew story. There's not a break there. There's a con continuity. There's a, a rootedness. The three, the three disciples, some sleepy to the point of almost missing it, lulled by what they figured would be just another boring prayer session on the mountain. Peter, James, and John awakening then to see a vision of brightness. Jesus all robed in white and shining and having a conversation with Moses and Elijah about his departure. And that word, departure, well, it could point to Jesus' departure for Jerusalem or maybe his departure into death, but which also means exodus. So it could refer to Jesus leading his disciples out of captivity into the promised land, a word with both immediate and end times, eschatological meaning. Then Peter, dear Peter, with his endearing but often tone-deaf desire to make amends, suggesting that they mark the occasion by building some booths and then being interrupted by God, who in an even greater endorsement of Jesus' ministry proclaims that Jesus, proclaims that Jesus is God's own child and calls us to listen to what he says. And then once God speaks, Moses and Elijah disappear, and Peter and James and John keep their mouths shut and don't tell anybody what they saw, as if anyone would have believed them or as if they were simply too confounded to make sense of it. Just another day in the life of a disciple. Then down the mountain they go, their faces not veiled but their tongues tied, and smack back into the real world of discipleship. A child lies writhing on the ground. The other disciples are standing around watching with looks on their faces we can only imagine. A crowd is gathered. And the child's father comes to Jesus and begs him to heal his son. He'd already begged Jesus' disciples to do it, but they couldn't. 
And then Jesus, sounding just like someone who's been up all night, rebukes the whole bunch of them. How much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Then Jesus rebukes the evil spirit, heals the child, and gives him back to his father. And everyone was astounded at the greatness of God. Yet another day in the life of a disciple. And as I read this text with our theme in mind, that's what I heard the Spirit saying. That this is what the life of a disciple has always been and always will be. The road from one degree of glory to another will often seem like a one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. One minute I'll be dazzled by what we've witnessed. Some transfiguring moment in which Christ has been made known to us in some new, deep, profound, even life-changing, mind-altering way. And then the very next minute, at the bottom of the mountain, faced with something we cannot fix, we cannot repair, we cannot heal, we can't change, we can't save, and maybe don't even know how to pray about. One minute hearing God's own voice, the next suspecting that Jesus is pretty well tired of us and would likely get a whole lot more accomplished without our help. Which tells me that our dreaming has to take this herky-jerky, up-and-down, back-and-forth rhythm into account. We cannot pretend that we will ever get this discipleship business down pat, that we will ever be perfect at it, that we'll ever arrive at some Eden of our own creation. In fact, it seems to me such pretending will only lead us astray. It will inevitably morph into that good old liberal notion of progress with our path leading ever higher and our faithfulness confidently at the wheel. Such pretending will make us intolerant of mistakes and those who make them. It'll make us impatient of the weak, the slow, the ones who sometimes seem to be holding us back. And it'll make us chronically dissatisfied, never happy or content, and so in its own way place a veil over our eyes and prevent us from seeing those small daily graces that, like breadcrumbs from the very hand of God, are what really lead us on. We cannot pretend that our future will gradually become smoother, more streamlined, more comfortable, and easier for the learning along the way. I suspect that whatever else Peter, James, and John were keeping quiet about, there was at least a small piece that centered on how they could use what they had just seen to their own advantage. And if that's the case, and if they were anything like me, I suspect it was, then their encounter with that sick little boy knocked such pretension out of them. They were confronted in the most stone-solid way by their utter weakness, their complete dependence, and by the limits of their humanity. Some things really can only happen because Jesus himself steps up and speaks the right word. And so as we dream, as we imagine, as we envision the future of this congregation, let's keep this story in mind. Let's keep in mind this one step forward, two steps back rhythm of discipleship. Let's not make a fetish out of it or turn it into an excuse for not dreaming at all, but let's take it into account and so allow plenty of room for error, for mistakes, for weakness. Let's take it into account and so set a pace that lets everybody keep up, no matter what they carry or how they're wounded or how slow or tentative their steps. This is not a rush to the top we are on. It's a long, slow, stumbling, following after. And isn't that just okay? Isn't that how God has always led us? Through the wilderness slowly in a most roundabout way, but ever faithful, always with us, always calling, cajoling, pleading, and even sometimes shouting at us to hold our attention along the way.
Again, let's keep perspective here. It would be fair to say, more than fair to say, that God's desire is for us to have never needed to wander at all, and if we needed to wander, to do so as quickly and painlessly and sinlessly as possible. But we messed up over and over and over and over again. We messed up. And still God patiently gathers us under God's wings. God lights that pillar of fire. God speaks through the prophets. God leads us beside still waters. And God comes to us in flesh and blood. And all for the sake of leading us on toward redemption. The journey, the exodus, is not ours to manage or maintain. It's the work of the Lord, the Spirit, to lead us, to guide us, to transform us from one degree of glory to another. Which means that while we must take our herky-jerky back-and-forth rhythm into account, our vision for the future must begin and end in something else, in someone else. Accounting for our weakness and our tendency to wander is for our own good. It keeps us humble. It keeps us compassionate, or ought to. It leaves us room to learn, to practice, and it leaves that same room for everybody else. But we must also remember what we witnessed on that mountaintop. We must also remember who we saw there. We must hold in our hearts the sound of God's voice speaking to us, calling to us to listen, to follow. We must remember that first brush of the Spirit's hand as it lifted the veil from our eyes. We must remember the old stories of people just like us and how God led them despite everything. And so remember that we are grounded in a story much older than we are, much deeper, much more true. We must remember that whatever is calling us into the future, whoever is calling us into the future is the same one and the only one who can see us through to the end. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as reflected in a mirror, are being transformed. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit, the one who has called us as faithful dear ones. We know this, right? We know this. And so we walk humbly, confidently, into God's own future, trusting that we will get there someday. Because God, because God, because God will make it so. Amen.